Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I'm your host, Marcus Gillis, and we are recording live from Banjo, Colorado. Population growing. Welcome to episode number 26 of the Live from Banjo podcast. Hey, Crystal, how's it going in your world? Oh, that really depends on how dark we want to take this tonight. How dark do you want to go? Well, I just had a relative pass away about four hours ago. Okay. Can we, that is, can we stop like, there? It's not like pin cushion head, pin head, hellraiser, like that be dark for me not getting the reference today's guests are lauren and daniel gones of lowland hum daniel started out as a solo artist performing as daniel levi gones but on his second record he added the voice of the visual artist that he brought on to sing with him then he added another and another this sound that daniel brought into his solo project eventually became its own sound as they toured with the album the relationship and the sound grew into the tree that is the lowland hum The two were married in 2012, and since 2013, the husband and wife duo Lowland Hum has released seven full-length albums, three EPs, and created a child, which they brought into the world in January of 2021. Daniel also works as a producer when the band is not touring. In 2021, post-baby, they wrote and produced a 35th anniversary cover album to Peter Gabriel's So. However, that was after wrapping their upcoming album of their own material with an expected release in the fall, because basically they don't sleep and or are very good with time management. While still leaving time for extended release punchlines, they are both activists for the hashtag quiet music campaign, and you should join the fight. Thank you so much for everyone that is listening. Please tell your friends, family, and complete strangers about the show. And again, please follow us on Facebook at Marcus Gillis, Instagram at Live from Banjo Podcast, comment on the show's post to let us know what you think. Also, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and set your reminders so you never miss an episode. Lastly, please leave five-star reviews, comments about the show, or whatever else your podcast platform has to help us spread the word. And please join us on Patreon.com at Live from Banjo Podcast. Crystal, what do we got in the wrap-up tonight? Uh, In the wrap-up tonight, tomorrow, this afternoon, this morning. Yesterday. Or during your commute to work. On your way to Iowa. On my way to Iowa. We talked about James Taylor debauchery. Is debauchery really the right word here? Because I feel like debauchery kind of indicates like a a lashing out on purpose. And we kind of discuss more of like he struggled with some mental health stuff. The definition of debauchery is extreme indulgence in bodily pleasures and especially sexual pleasures. Behavior involving sex, drugs, alcohol, etc. that is often considered immoral. Well, how about in the wrap up today, we discuss James Taylor's maybe mental health and addiction struggles. I think that's more appropriate. Okay, I like that better. And then we talk about So and uh, one of the original TV AI introductions, which was not the maid on the Jetson. And now, please enjoy my pleasant and real conversation with Lowland Um. Well, thanks so much for having us. We're excited to uh, to chat with you, and hopefully, our son will take a nap. Take a nap. He's kind of flopped around, but so far, he is in the crib, and he's not dying. My uh, fur baby decided to go to work, and he's taking a nap in front of me. And then my daughter hasn't woken up yet, and Grandma's visiting down below, so she's just trying to be quiet. So we're all in the same boat. 
But nice to meet you guys. Yes, nice to meet you too. How are you doing? And how's the how's the little one doing? We're doing well. We just yeah. got back into town from visiting family yesterday. So I think he's adjusting, but he's adjusting pretty well. And I was doing some pre-production for a record I'm working on. And then I was being part of a, a record I produced a couple of years ago. They did a couple of shows to celebrate the release because the record came out during COVID. And so I was playing guitar, which is not a normal thing for me. It's always our show that we're at. And so it was really fun. I just played guitar in the band with this friend of mine and it's great it's really fun what band was that so my friend lives in an intentional community and it is a community where people of different abilities all live together okay and so my friend has written songs with members of the community and then he asked me could you produce this thing i wanted to capture what is happening in our community and it's just profound and beautiful what's happening and they're kind of like contemplative sacred songs but they're songs that kind of repeat sort of distilled phrases they're almost meditations it's a very particular thing, but there is a kind of choir from the community that sang with us, and it's a wild experience, and it's hard to talk about. It's hard to explain, because what they have going on is so beautiful and kind of beyond words. So, yeah, we, we produced the record by my friend who I've known for many years. We actually grew up together. He wrote the songs, and is kind of the main singer, but he actually sings along with a woman named Sabaya and a, and a man named Sloan. Sloan is not really able to speak using words very clearly, and so... It helped me understand new aspects of beauty. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I can imagine working with people of disabilities and different abilities uh, that, you know, you have to search new avenues to work as a single unit. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there's, there just are sounds that we consider approved and sounds we consider not approved or, you know, and even what we consider expression, it's such a narrow window. Sure. And I was changed by the experience. It's two years ago now, but getting back together with, with all of them and they're such lovely people and it's very reorienting for me to be with them. So it was a great weekend. And actually that was our son's first show. He got to see one of the shows and the rest of the band who played with us, just incredible musicians, great North Carolina crew. The band's called Meek Squad. I wasn't planning on talking about that, but it's just, that is what happened this weekend. So <laughs> No, that's, that's perfect. But I just wanted to let you guys know right out of the gates you guys are only the second band that i've ever had that i found out by way of the recommendation of one of the guests on the show oh, oh cool, cool. Yeah. that's awesome and so i had david on the show david wax and he had just listened to i guess solo for the first time and he's like oh my friends are about to put out this amazing album but you should check them out they'd be a great guest for the show so i went out and i downloaded is it glyphonic or glyphonic how do you pronounce that i say glyphonic but like hieroglyph yeah that's but a lot of people have said glyphonic and i just don't anything because it's a made up word anyway <laughs> oh, yeah. made up words. so glyphonic was the first album i heard and then i a drive through the country was kind of the catalyst of me going oh i'm into this but since i've listened to now a larger breadth of your work drive through the country is kind of a little bit different than a lot of songs i think that you guys have put out at least in style tone that kind of thing did it feel that way for you or am i just like making large sweeping unfounded statements for my usual <laughs> That guitar part is different. And I think we did our first Europe tour in 2017. And I was just like trying a bunch of stuff on guitar. I have this friend who went to Ireland and lived there for a while. And sometimes it's like I'm trying to get closer to the way he described his experience playing guitar in Ireland and playing in these pubs. And we didn't do any of that, actually. And I've never done that. <laughs> I kind of play everything by ear. But I started kind of messing with that part from that song. 
And I think it is actually coming from trying to see if there's any of that kind of thing inside of me or something. Or a musical dialogue. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah. That guitar part really stuck out to us. We usually go through all these different voice memos to figure out what we want to spend more time working on as we approach a new album. And Lauren said, I'd like to spend some time with that. Usually we'll try to select way more memos. You know, maybe we would select 30 or 40 and then we'd end up with 10 songs. But Usually we'll listen through all of them together and then one of us will say, hey, I'm feeling something about that. And so one or the other of us will take that memo and start to write. And in this case, Lauren wrote that whole song and then came back to me and said, hey, I think I've got... I mean, we, we finished yeah. it together, but... I mean, it's, it came from a poem I'd written about a drag through the countryside and then paired it with that guitar part. So her hearing that guitar part, she thought this guitar part is in a similar space as this poem and then started working on that. And it did feel different. And I think, you know, we, we're from North Carolina, but we moved to this area in Charlottesville six or seven years ago. And there are sonic changes. The scene brings different kinds of sounds out of us. The greens are different here. The shape of the hills is different. Mm-hmm. Um, we're kind of from the middle of North Carolina where it's relatively flat with hills, I would say. <laughs> Um, and then where we are now is kind of foothills and we can see the mountains from where we are. And, and it's just more farmland. We're not really from the part mm-hmm. of North Carolina that has a lot of farms. I think that song kind of comes out of, at least the sound of it, I think it's coming from those two places. Aspiring British Isles, which is kind of like poor man's British Isles <laughs> style. Um, and then, um, you know, and then this, I think this, this setting we're in now, for me, that's where the guitar was coming from and the the poem I think is just beautiful and we do finish every song together so we did kind of work Mm -hmm. through the poem and I I would add things in and ask you know what does that mean how can we say that more clearly and that's kind of how we do every song kind of almost take like a stream of consciousness beginning and then uh, go from there and and kind of touching up what what that original inception was in that kind of way do you yeah. want to talk okay sorry our son is uh he's kind of wild now we have a little monitor down here to make sure he's okay but i'm, I'm just gonna give him a pacifier and be right sure back. well daniel goes and takes care of the passy like i said I, I started out with glyphonic and then since then i've had the pleasure of deep diving through most of your catalog and i have this playlist that i have on my spotify that i've created called sleep time tea it's what I listen to when my mind's just racing and I can't go to sleep. And it's it's got a lot of good people, but like Milk Carton Kids, Bar Brothers, Bahamas, Blind Pilot, Bone Bear, that kind of, you know, just relaxing oh, music. It. But uh, I felt like you guys fit perfectly into that playlist as I've been going through. This is kind of random, but I recently saw that you put out a video on a tour of your outhouse. <laughs> yes, yes. And though your music seems to be, you know, often very serious and seems, you know, kind of serene in watching some of your live performances now and then hearing you speak in some other interviews, I find that Daniel, you in particular joke around a lot. And like me, you seem to be a tall and lanky fellow. And I was wondering if comedy and kind of self-deprecation had been a uh, defense mechanism growing up as being just a tall and lanky person that maybe had some North Carolina boys that comedy uh, <laughs> comedy was a help in uh, kind of staying on the outside and that self-deprecating humor. That's very astute of you. Uh, that is 100% been my experience. I was extremely skinny as a kid. And um, the main metrics for expression in my context were sports. 
tried, I played basketball, you know, I was just a small guy. So a humor was a huge part of how I made it through there. And, uh, and also in the early days of our band, actually, a friend called me and was like, I like your music, but you're kind of like a really weird guy that says bizarre stuff and you joke around all the time but in the music i'm not like getting that and he's like you don't have to like bring every aspect of your personality to every part of your life like that's not even possible but he was like might be interesting to just let more of that out and so i think in live shows starting about two years into the band we just started allowing the much stranger sides of us resonate a lot with absurd humor me too and imagining bizarre scenarios and sort of going really far with that is very fun for me but in a more quiet way now you love it too. So, pretty wild, but I'm a little lighter. Probably if we were just in conversation, our bits would just go on and on because that <laughs> is definitely my sense of humor. And sometimes it just drives my wife crazy. So I'm glad you found somebody that really digs it. I have more, I have more capacity for the length of the joke. So his cousin and him will just take something so far and long. And you recently described I said, it as... I said, I don't want to, I don't want to beat a dead horse. I want to ride a horse until it completely is decomposed and there's no horse left. <laughs> Just take it. Yeah, so I ride the far. comment until it goes out. So I completely understand. If you don't do that, you don't know how far it could have gone. <laughs> right. You use that as well to to help you to be oh, as a sure, yeah. for you. I grew up. Um, I grew up north of Atlanta, and like a, I went from like a pretty diverse middle school to like a, a Johnny Football Hero High School, and uh, I yeah. stopped growing for a period of my life, which turned out to be high school. And I also, uh, my voice decided not to kind of get that baritone sound until I was about halfway through my junior year of high school. So not only was I short Mm -hmm. and scrawny, but I also had a a bit of a high-pitched voice and I was a punk rock kid in the South. So yes, I found out my freshman year of high school, the only way for me to survive was to make the large fellows around me uh, laugh. And uh, sometimes I took self-deprecating humor, which may have, you know, lasted too long into my life and (laughs) made me make some, you know, some bad judgments along the way, but definitely was part of my uh, growing up, or at least that's the story I tell myself now, you know. I too was very short and didn't grow till, I didn't get to where people would say, you're tall until college, probably. Like Mm -hmm. if someone would make fun of me, I would just take it farther and then anticipate Oh, you think, uh, well, check this out. Like, I've already thought about that. And actually, I can say way cooler stuff. And that that has very bad uh, consequences. It does. It's not good for your lifelong health. No. But um, it helps. You know, it's kind of like drugs and alcohol. You know, you find them and you use them as an immediate medication. But then as you get later into life, you realize that that's not the solution. That was a, yeah. that was a quick fix. I need to do some other work. <laughs> yeah. That's not gonna, it's not going to carry me through. Yeah. Therapy and some of those things have helped me kind of find a yeah, way through same, that same here. yeah i wanted to bring up the the comedy aspect because you guys have this hashtag support quiet music which seems to be this kind of dichotomy of seriousness and then has like this kind of humorous aspect of like yeah. you know really uh really campaigning to support quiet music how did support quiet music come about and is that a kind of comical campaign it's part comical part serious i would say yeah we i mean we make quiet music we listen to loud music and love loud music also but Mm -hmm. we have so many friends that make quiet music and just through the experience of performing in various settings realize 
there's plenty of spaces for loud, boisterous, exciting music. Not that quiet music isn't exciting in its own way. And fewer spaces where quiet music is really set up to succeed, I guess. And even based on like feedback from booking agents, from, yeah, like, like from our agents, we'd even get the feedback. Yeah, everybody at these festivals, they love your band. They listen to you and they're not going to. They're not going to have you come. You're right. <laughs> Just not, yeah, it's not the thing. For, so part of it is facetious and part of it is we really do want to draw attention to bands and artists that are making something quiet that may not otherwise receive attention. Or Well, and especially when we started out in folk music, the trend was like kind of yell singing. Anthemic folk. Yeah, like stadium sort of like stadium folk bands. thing. And it's kind of still is, but sure. those were the bands that were kind of like getting traction. And we had met all these other bands and thought, oh man, I hope that because that other stuff does so well, this doesn't stop happening or existing. Because we even play these shows with people, there'd be like 10 people there and be these incredible songs with such interesting dynamics and such interesting arrangements. And it just, people would kind of like, oh, that's cool, you know, whatever. And, and it didn't seem like it would catch on. And so some of it was really from that place of like, man, I hope people realize like what immediately grabs their attention. If they only pay attention to that, like this other stuff, those people will stop doing it because they won't be able to, you know, yeah, that kind of thing. Also, just the idea that whenever we go to like a department store or like a big box store of any kind, the music is just, it sounds like you're in a club and realizing like everybody seems to want not everybody, but it seems like mainstream culture is just like always louder, louder, yeah, louder to 11. No dynamics. It's like the verse is loud, but the chorus is louder. And it's like that kind of thing. And even, yeah, so even just, mastering, everything's mastered louder and everything, you know. So folded in is also just the idea that we need quiet spaces for the other parts of our emotional spectrum to have space. So, I mean, it kind of reminds we, me. We're, we're expressing all the serious aspects yeah. of support quiet music, but we also but think the, it's kind of. It's funny. really funny to. Hashtag. We, op we opened for these friends of ours, this, this band called the Oh Hellos, and they're really rambunctious. They have two drummers and a bunch of members, and it's really loud music. And I've gone to see them a couple of times, yeah. When we toured with them, it was, it was really energetic, and it was an amazing show. But we would open, and we would just kind of tell the audience, like, we know that you came for a really high experience. And this is where the humor side really comes into, I think, the support crowd music thing. We were like, if you always eat meat for all the courses of a meal, you'll feel real sick. But if you mix in some salad, we'll, we'll be the salad for the evening. Just It's going to be light. There's just only a few sounds at a time. And so people would laugh. But I think it also, it's both serious and not. And I think it's actually similar to what we're talking about, about why we develop that humor and why it's self-deprecating. There need to be more spaces for more kinds of, in our case, more kinds of dudes, like a different kind of guy. Yeah, It looks different and sounds different and is smaller. And there needs to be more space for that. And then people don't feel like, oh, I'm, something's wrong with me, which is kind of what I felt growing up. Something's wrong with me. I'm 100% on board. <laughs> and I also think with talking about your guys' style of music, of being kind of quiet and, you know, maybe serious or serene in some way that you guys, because you don't have really that cross section of song where it's like, all right, we're doing a quiet song now, or we're doing a couple of quiet songs. And then... We're going to bring you the high energy, having mm -hmm. the dichotomy of just your act or your performance in between songs of being this kind of like humorous, like almost a little bit stand up ish. And, you know, some of your interactions with the audience, it gives that change of pace so that it's not just the, the quiet music all the way through, even though I, I love so many different types of music. So I can go to a show and be completely fine going 
to listen to an all quiet band that also doesn't even talk in between songs. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, I'm, I can get behind it, but I could see how that would help, you know, kind of promote you as you guys get around and tour. I think it also, I don't know, helps bring like a disarming element for the audience because I think sometimes people can feel like, wow, this is really, it's so serious. It's so serious. I don't really feel like our music is that serious, but maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, it kind of is. I mean, there's some songs that are lighter hearted and, but still very serious sounding maybe, but that's what uh, I mean. Yeah. More on the sound than the actual, maybe what you're trying to say or. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think like, especially when we're starting out, people coming to hear you for the first time, different entry points. And I think allowing some, Uh, We just want people to be able to come to the show in whatever state they're in. Then throughout the show, there'd be an entry point for them, regardless of like what the mood is, what the vibe is for them. They could be like, well, I wasn't feeling that, but like, because I'm in this mood, but then later this happened and then I could kind of enter in there. And with the Christmas record, we thought, man, so many Christmas records have this sort of like victorious like manic and there's a hypeness to it and a kind of like christmas is always good and it always feels good and we were kind of like what if you're feeling like your christmas is just like rain soaked you're kind of like a little creature that's been soaking wet and you're cold and you're feeling well, lonely or on you're, a serious note you, like christmas is a sad time for yeah, a lot right, of people right. for various yeah. reasons and there's not a whole lot of music that accommodates that. Yeah. And so our hope in that was maybe people could like maybe people need a christmas record that a little they could, out. that they could come to in a different kind of headspace and so sometimes i think we and it and again it's like kind of funny like some of the some of the arrangements on that i hope people kind of are like that's kind of funny because it's yeah. like um it's, it's like the, it's ironic like, it's sonically yeah. ironic <laughs> and we mean it's like we totally mean it earnestly sonically ironic would be sonically ironic is tight a lot of things but. yeah Sonically ironic. That should be a, yeah, a collaboration between us, you, and David Wax Museum. Um, I think that I, I like the themes that are emerging in this conversation because I think a lot of what we hope for, and I think I'm, I'm thinking about it also because of this past weekend. I think what this Meek Squad record was aiming to do and why I was so honored to, to be working on it is that it's trying to create more space for people to be together and to enter in to the, to experiences and to, and to be present together. And, and it is like, sometimes when we're talking about the sport, quiet music thing, we talk about how every time we make a record, we want it to be more rock and roll and it gets quieter than the previous record. Against our best it's like against, it's like against our will. And we're like, what is happening? And, um, and sometimes I'll say that like in five years, you'll come see us and we'll just be going, <laughs> not a, like no notes register at all there's no sounds at just, all just and, uh, almost a breath you can see that something's coming out but you, yeah you don't really discern what that is it's facial expression and air we'll have to perform in cold environments only so you can see our breath yes yeah it's a visual <laughs> art experience but i think it's it is such a weird experience to to aim to make something that's it just keeps happening to us and so yeah i think we keep thinking can we capture more of our who we are sonically and then it just keeps getting quieter. quieter i don't know i don't know why and i think there's something about there's something humbling about that and and you can't control for us we can't control what our collaboration where it goes we don't want to try to make it sound like something we want to try to let what's coming through us come through and try to grow in the excellence of that expression but i think there's something interesting and vulnerable kind of like having a body that you didn't choose you walk around in this 
thing. And you're sometimes you're like, I don't like elements of this, lots of elements of it. And yet this is what I'm given. And this is what I have to interact with people. And so it's the same with music for me. It's like, we don't make our favorite music. We make the music we can make. And so the part of talking about support quiet music is partially learn to accept yourself, learn to bring as much of you to whatever you're doing as you can and be embarrassed by it, but keep doing it or be proud of it and keep doing it or a mixture of both, which is probably more where all of us land. Yeah. Proud of things and you kind of cringe as well. Yes. I was born in this body and I've, I've lived with it my whole life so far. And uh, <laughs> I definitely have a lot of moments where it's, it's very cringy. You know, my nose is gigantic. I, I, I started breaking my nose when I was younger, just made a broken parts, but it just kept going farther and farther forward every time. And I'm trying as I get older to be get more more comfortable and and the same with getting back into writing songs like you say like i have all these bands that i love and i don't sound anything like them (laughs) and uh i just am trying to get comfortable just letting my music come out and whatever that is it is and hopefully there's somebody out there that appreciates that but i can only put what comes out of my body out into the world and so yeah Either I get to not put it out into the world and not play in front of people, or I just put out what comes out. I love that. so good. Yeah, I really love that. And I also love, we have a lot of similarities. I, I also broke my nose a bunch and it grew and people always talk about it. And it's very interesting how many, especially the physical aspect, it's like mapping exactly on to my <laughs> life so far. Um, but I, I think that even just in talking to you already, I can tell that what happens when you have experiences like that, you grow in a kind of empathy that is painful. Like you, 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 like my hair is thinning, for instance. And mm-hmm. people say, people who have thinning hair never comment on anyone's hair ever because <laughs> they, they know the humiliation of people commenting on your hair. And what can you say? You just say, uh, yes, that is happening. <laughs> yes. Uh, I can't control that. And it's not happening to you, which is why you're saying it. And certainly why you're saying it in front of these people and making me feel so small and weird about something I can't control. And that shouldn't matter. Right. I think that those experiences, although I I hope I have a son and I hope he doesn't have to have the experiences I had where people point out what is quote unquote wrong with me. I hope he can understand different people look different ways and the ways that they look and the bodies that they have allow them to be able to do different things than other people. When I would meet, especially when I was really young and I had no filters at all and I first was touring, I would meet these super lonely, ashamed people and they would see in my eyes, hey, this guy's in pain. And then we'd be like, hey, they'd be like, are you okay? And I'd be like, no. And they'd be like, I'd be like are you okay? And they'd be like, no. And we would kind of like, sometimes literally we would cry or we would hug. And these are like super intense, like anarchist musicians that are singing these songs. But really, like we're trying to understand how can we get closer to other people? What do we do with these things that we feel? And, and I, I'm not 100% grateful for some of the baggage that I still have. But in some ways, I see that it's allowed for certain interactions that I wouldn't trade for anything. And that sounds like I'm saying I'm glad it happened. That's not true. Anyway, I'm still working through it. But I think already in talking to you, I I sense there's a kindness in your face. And if it wasn't that face, the kindness wouldn't be that kindness. And I'm glad that you have it. Well, thank you. You know, like you say, very disappointed about a lot of the things that went on in my childhood and some of my early childhood trauma. I, you know, wish that wasn't part of me. I I live my life with imposter syndrome because I'm constantly, I feel like most of my life until now I'm 41, but 
you know, a lot of my life, I just have always lived these characters and, uh, I just was recently talking to somebody about it, but I'm, I'm trying to just have my persona, which is me rather than the chameleon aspect, which served me well for a lot of years. And my show is like my little safety net for authenticity. (laughs) It it allows me just to have my one moment where I don't know if it's therapy or whatever. And I appreciate you guys sitting here and not charging me, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say the same same thing. I think as this, like the way that this translates into the music you make also, I think people can feel when something's put on and I think people can feel when, I don't know, I feel suspicious of music where it feels like someone's creating something like something or trying to make something kind of like manhandle it or white knuckle something into something else. I'm always more drawn to something that sounds like an actual person, both like vocally and lyrically. I mean, like our music is totally shaped by our limitations as people and as artists. And I, I think like we're only two people. We can only make so much noise. We can only make the noise that we can make. It, it, it shapes it all in a way that I feel thankful for. And I guess maybe there are some people out there that can sound like whatever they want, but I don't understand that. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. But in maybe, you know, you said you can only make so much noise. Maybe as you're getting older that it's just kind of retroactively going backwards. And that's that's coming to that kind of breath music light show that, you know, we <laughs> anticipate here in the next five yeah. years. Listeners, listeners, beware. This is really we, quiet light show. It's, <laughs> it's a laser show. Lights come out of their mouth and there's no sound. Yeah, there's a, it's, <laughs> it's 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 kind of like, you know, fish pink Floyd lighting extravaganza meat. A uh, very small fog breath machine type of <laughs> totally. aesthetic. It's a micro experience, and we, we have cameras that are all up in the mouth, and you get to. You can only really perform at at large venues that have like the big Megatron type screen, yes. so people can yes. get that full experience. <laughs> we only play ten nights yeah. a year at Madison Square Garden, and the whole rest of the year we're planning out how we're going to make our mouths shape the clouds for the next year's like ten days. Rings, but way more it's, focused yes. and way. Oh yeah. God. I want to try God. to learn how to make a tall ship with my my mouth shape. <laughs> a three-masted tall ship. That's the goal. Uh, out of breath fog. Might have to take some time off of the music to really get to focus on that. But you guys had a baby this January. December. 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 Yeah. December. 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 Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you were recording your recent album, So Low, in 2021. Was that something you had started prior to your child's birth, or was that all post-baby? It was all post-baby. I mean, the idea came before our son was born. We planned on starting that whenever we decided we could shift from only focusing on him a little bit. We knew the date we wanted to release it, because we wanted to release it on the 35th anniversary of So's original release, which was May 19th, 1986. So we knew, okay, May 19th is when it's going to come out. But we thought maybe after two months with a kid, we would be kind of like operational again. That was not exactly what happened. Um, (laughs) So it was still pretty full on at the two month mark. And then I thought because it was only a digital release that we wouldn't have to turn in the files to our distributor until early May. Mm-hmm. But when I, I reached out and said like, hey, when do you need the files? He said, I need them in early April. And I was like, yeah. And so we were like, time to start recording. And so we like started arranging that day. And that was probably mid-February. And we were kind of like, we have to do this now. So we started arranging. 
we asked Lauren's parents to come and help. But it was like every time we fell asleep, we were like, go, go, go. We like run like out to the studio and we're like, this take better be the one. And we're like, get in there. You know, it was, it was full on. And Lauren would keep the baby a lot while I tried a lot of different textures. And then I would hold him and she would come in and check, oh, I'm feeling this direction. This doesn't feel as good. Or like, let's, you know, let's carve this down. And we would together kind of shape that. Mm-hmm. But it was very much a kind of like hand off the baby, all hands on deck. We worked for about, I would guess about 30 days in a row, every single moment he was asleep, pretty much we were out there. And that's how Solo came into existence. And then Solo, uh, you said that it was a 35th anniversary of So. How does that whole ballet happen? Originally, we just joked that we should do this thing with our manager on the phone. We were like, we should cover the whole album. <laughs> because the album is so lush and has so many layers, I just thought it would be funny to say it to our manager. Like, hey, we're going to cover the entire album, like Peter Gabriel's whole album, So. And I just thought like he might believe me for a second and then we would all laugh but then i started thinking about it and i was like kind of like this idea and then i think we did sledgehammer we quickly first. arranged a verse and chorus of sledgehammer and sent him the voice memo and he was like i think you have to do it it's the same kind of thing it's really funny it's, it's funny really really, it's funny. really funny like when i hear it i'm like this is so funny but it's kind of like showcases elements of the song it's like kind of Kind of very serious too. Yeah, that was where it started the idea. Yeah, we, we started with Sledgehammer and we planned to do all of them. And then we, in various moments, felt like, oh my gosh, this feels like such a tall order. Maybe we I don't should know if we can do not do all the songs, but the songs all feel like they inform one another and belong together. Mm-hmm. So we just felt like, eh, we can't just do some of them. And some of them, man, we had some moments of, to be honest, despair. I was like, how, how do we, like Mercy big Street time. and big time. big time? It was like, <laughs> I was listening to the original. I've loved the record for a long, long time. And I'm so familiar with the arrangements, but only as a listener and only as I'm like driving and like, yeah, like, but then I'm like listening to it and thinking, could we inhabit this space? And he's such a singular vocalist. Peter Gabriel is. He has this power that doesn't compromise his vulnerability. He'll belt something out, but it still feels like you're really close. So human and so to gentle, it, too. Oh. And his pitch is so amazing. And he has a lot of comedic kind of elements that he includes, yeah. you know, into his. Totally. I mean, not only in his old music videos and stuff, you know. He's yeah. very playful lyrically. He's very comedic in some of his word selections and kind of ironic and a lot of that. So, but at the same time, serious. And then, you know, one of the most iconic love songs of our generation is on that album, you know. And Yeah. But then, like you say, Big Time and Sledgehammer were just crazy and huge and epic in a, in a completely different way. And being able to turn them into the Lowland Hum version of that, I can imagine, was definitely an undertaking. Something interesting about re-recording songs from 35 years ago is that mm-hmm. you get this whole new perspective on what those phrases could mean now. And then you can kind of also see a sort of prophetic quality that existed then. So like this big time being this like megalomaniac, a friend pointed out that singing it now is really interesting because we're in like, we're in this moment where we had this president who was comically that way, like more that way than any person that you could ever, like you can't make it up. It's too, it's so far. It's like so far in that right? It's a, he's, a, he's a character of himself. Yeah, it was like an AI computer-generated president, you know, based off of like Max Hedrum becoming president or something. Yeah, it's, it, you can't imagine it. But it, if you especially listen to Big Time with that thought and with this this whole move to everybody publish all of their lives through doctored pictures and 
all this stuff, you kind of realize the depth of the, the writer of these songs and kind of how he was thinking about human experience and human interaction and the consequences of technology. And he's, you know, experimenting with all these digital recording processes. And so there's a lot of new layers for me that, that came into these songs by having to sing the lines and thinking yeah. about, oh my gosh, what does that mean now? And Interesting. Now I'm singing it, all that stuff. And, and even, you know, where England is now, where mm. the U.S. is now. Sure. So that was just kind of an interesting aspect to it and made me respect Peter Gabriel even more, which I, I didn't think was a thing that could happen. And it is interesting in, in kind of, you know, the prophetic nature of the lyrics. But at the same time, at the time, Ronald Reagan, who was a movie star <laughs> that became the president of the United States in a kind of turn of events, eventually a reality television star becomes the president of the United States. But at the same time, where we were at as a society, you know, we were kids, but where it was at for Peter Gabriel, it was probably a similar moment to what we're experiencing in our life at, you know, a similar age with having a reality television show actor become the president of the United States. And for him, it was some old white dude from the movies that was now running the most powerful country in the world. And that was probably an interesting moment as well. Yeah. And I think about the parallels too, with like sort of problematic idea structures and how that, that affects everybody. And said so that this idea that like this trickle down idea back then, and then this idea that like, oh, we need to return to 1950. You understand that that's, it's so problematic and it's ignoring so much of what these two different idea structures mean and what they do to people and the violence they inflict, those ideas inflict on people and the judgments that they execute that are unjust. You know, I was thinking about this, you know, as in now kind of like looking back at that time, you know, what Reagan did to the U.S. prison system and the war on drugs and, you know, the racist construct that he form-fitted into society, which has caused all this demise 30 years later. It's going to be interesting to see what actually comes down the pipeline as a result of some of the things that our last president did and It'll be interesting to see where our future goes. Don't know if I need to put that out into the world, but I just wanted to get that thought off my brain. So you guys have put out six full length albums. We're going to go seven, including your Christmas album. And then you uh, released Native Air in 2013. And, and at that time, Daniel, prior to that, you were recording as a solo artist. In 2011, you had released Brother Stranger, where you had sang harmony and um, some of the backup vocals mm -hmm. at what point had you guys gotten together and did your music come from a relationship or did your relationship come from a musical connection so when we were first getting to know each other lauren's background is visual art and so I had asked her to do the album art for that record, Brother Stranger. Yeah. We were definitely interested, but it was like we were getting to know each other and we called it moving toward each other. We were we had both been in relationships that weren't healthy. And so we decided to be very careful with language. Contextualizing. We caught a lot of flat from all of our friends at this time so because like, they were like, you obviously like each other. It's exclusive. Like, I don't know. It was just helpful for us. Yeah, it was helpful for us. But anyway. So it was definitely, we were definitely spending time together a lot and trying to figure out what was happening between us, basically. And 
but it wasn't musical yet. No, L- Lauren wasn't <clears throat> singing publicly at all. I had heard her sing along to something and she was writing a harmony on the fly. And I didn't even know her actually. I went to a going away party for her that I wasn't invited to. I just invited myself along with my friend. I had been living in Nashville. I had moved back to um, Greensboro, North Carolina. And he was like, I'm going to this party. And I was like, I'm going to? Is that cool? <laughs> And it would happen to be Lawrence going away party. And so I, I was standing near the speakers, which is what I do. So I don't say too much weird stuff when I'm first meeting people. I was standing right where the speakers were playing music so that no one would talk to me. And then I heard a harmony on this song I knew. And I was like, I didn't know this song had a harmony. And then I turned around and it was Lauren just making it up on the spot. And it was really a cool harmony. And so I, our memories are different at this moment. But I thought, I said, hi, I'm Daniel. Thanks for letting me come to your party. You should sing. You're awesome. And then she remembers me just saying, without any introduction, you should sing with me, which it probably, <laughs> it probably was that. But probably anyway. Somewhere in the middle. But. Yeah. Um, so anyway, about a year after that is when I asked her to do the album art because I was an admirer of her visual art. And then I asked her to sing on one song and it was kind of electrifying the experience of it. And then, so then I was like, what about one more? What about one more? And once we got the four songs, I decided to cut it off because I didn't know where the relationship was going. And I thought, this is going to become a sound. I don't want to like commit to that because I don't know if she's... I, I was way in, like I was way into the whole thing. You know, we were just being very careful with our language. We weren't voicing everything we were feeling because of, I think, past experience and just wanting to be careful. And so this is probably 2011. I was working on a new song and Lauren said, hey, I have an idea. Can I kind of like stay in here while you're writing? And we were both like very nervous and it was very awkward. I was kind of like, yeah, you would uh, get into these kind of strange moods and that would usually mean that you needed to write a song and that time I was like I could leave or I could stay but you can stay I was like you can stay but no, I've never I'd never done that with anybody I would always be like I need to be alone I gotta do this thing and then she threw something out and I thought oh that's better than my idea and so then we were just writing together starting with that solo record that she sang on I had already finished that and so this next song was one of the first songs on Native Air and we realized pretty quickly oh this is not a Daniel I was just going by my full name which is Daniel Levi Goins but I was like, this isn't a Daniel record now it's a it's some other thing and that's when Lowland Home was born which is really like 2012 once we started touring we were touring my songs but she would change the arrangements and I thought oh this was better that's kind of how gradual very gradual progression as we got ready to release Brother Stranger at that time I had a 14 piece band (laughs) and Lauren Lauren was one of the singers and there were two women singers and the other singer was also a great songwriter and we were all like helping each other make all this music. It was it was an exciting time. And you each made like 14 cents a show. <laughs> oh, no. I think we all lost money. It, it was like, no, we spend money. <laughs> to do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was so elaborate. Everything we did was so elaborate. But when we tried to tour it, I could first I could only take a five-piece version. And then it was like, I can only take Lauren. The show's like three hours away and no, we can't all go. Like I can't pay anybody anything and we're going to lose money. But I can't ask these people to lose money all the time. So that's when we started rearranging all the songs to create the same dynamic, but with t- only two people. And I think that's kind of when Low and Home was born. Mm-hmm. So we try to create the same dynamic shape of this 14-piece thing, but with only two people. And, and that's when we really started using silence a lot within songs and yeah, getting space, so quiet. We needed space becomes an element you have to use yeah. if you only have two people. <laughs> it's like, well, you can't keep leveling it up with guitar dynamics. That was the getting quieter was how we were able to create the same shapes because the shapes seemed integral to the songs. And I, yeah, I think that and then starting to 
have Lauren's voice factor much more heavily on every single song, that's when we both realized, oh, this is a new band. So this is where I try and figure out people's influences. And sometimes I hit the mark and sometimes I don't. But when I hear Brother Stranger or that album and then going into Native Air, I think there was some more connective tissue at that point with what your sound was at the end of your solo project and then going into kind of where you guys are now you've, you know, it's definitely, it's an always moving target with songs and seasons of, you know, people's music, but was Elliot Smith a a big influence on you when you were younger? You know, I, I loved what I had heard, but I was not deeply immersed. Okay. This is kind of bizarre, but I didn't, honestly, my family didn't listen to lots of music. So I didn't even hear the Beatles till I was 12 had kind of an unusual entrance to being so into music. It started around when I was 11 or 12. Like my parents thought I was on drugs because I would listen for like six hours a day to music. I, was like, I can't believe this exists. But I worked in a movie theater when the Royal Tenenbaums came out. And seeing that movie was one of these early moments where I thought, okay, like something may be wrong with me, but there are other people who seem to also be weird and I might not know them all, or maybe I only know one or two of them, but this fact that this movie exists and some of the music in it too. And there's, there's an Elliot Smith song in there, Needle in the Hay. Yep. No, that was my introduction to Elliot Smith. So I completely get it. And that, I remember that, that had a big effect on me and even me and Julio is on there. And there's a lot of great songs on that. So for me, that, that was kind of an opening in a lot of ways. And because I worked at the theater, I could I saw it 11 times. I could see it every day. Mm-hmm. My job was I would go in during a movie and make sure everything was okay and kind of clean up a little bit and then I'd go in after. So I saw the credits like a thousand times. And, and so I would, yeah, I would see that movie all the time. And I think that, that, that had a huge impact on me. Wes Anderson, both his movies and his, his song selections had such a huge impact on me growing up. I was sitting on the couch my freshman year of college and I was in business at University of Georgia because I wanted to be a musician. I didn't think that I was good enough. And I was like, well, I guess I could get, you know, some kind of business degree and maybe go into producing music because I was so naive to anything in the world and didn't know anybody in that capacity. Mm -hmm. And I saw Bottle Rocket as a a video and I had rented from vision video in Athens, Georgia. They used to do this thing called five for five. You could get five videos for five days for $5. And I watched bottle rocket and I got up off the couch and drove over to the school, to the film program to change my degree and ended up going to see this crazy professor, Charles Isaac. And he ran the film department at the time. And he was just kind of Santa Clausy looking guy. And he's like, Hey, don't change your major to the film program. Our film program kind of sucks here. This is the head of the film program. (laughs) We don't get any of the equipment. We just don't have it. He's like, are your parents wealthy? I said, no, you know, I've got a scholarship here. My parents aren't paying for my school. And he's like, okay, well, I would say if you can go to UNC or USC or get to LA or New York, otherwise uh, go into the journalism program. And so I ended up going over and working my way and getting into the journalism program at UGA. And that was kind of, and then I eventually did go to Los Angeles film school and worked out in LA and film for a while. But Wes Anderson, like love I found from bottle rocket and, you know, he, you know, he introduced me to a lot of, a lot of musicians and stuff. I'll be right back. Yep. So Daniel, who were some of your other inspirations growing up? You said you didn't find the 
Beatles until you were 12. How'd you get into music? The Beatles was a, was a kind of a, the start of a lot for me because I realized I heard when my grandfather would come to town, my grand, my grandparents would come to town, my granddad, he said he would buy me one thing when he'd come to visit. And I would usually ask for a CD. And so he'd take me to the CD store. And I, I think I picked the White Album pretty early on just randomly because I just, of course, knew of the Beatles in a way. But I really only knew like she was just 17 and hold my hand and maybe saw her standing there or something like that. Like just those, probably those three. So then I, I get the white album and I hear Blackbird and I hear Dear Prudence and I hear, uh, and I particularly remember, this isn't on the white album, mm-hmm. but I remember hearing Eleanor Rigby and I always felt bad for being sad because I had a lot, a lot of love in my life and my family was very loving and great people and I had good friends that loved me, but I, I still felt very sad a lot and I would feel pretty bad about it. But when I heard Eleanor Rigby, for some reason, I felt so comforted by that. Yes. The way it felt to me, I, I just listened to it over and over. And I just kind of was like, the inside of me was just like saying, thank you. Thank you. And it was like, there was space, you know, there was more space for these elements of me that I thought I needed to kind of push away or distance myself from and, and really couldn't because I thought everything so strongly. So I think that was a big turning point for me earlier in my life. Uh, I, you know, I knew the hits, radio hits. And I remember Weezer. I remember kind of like, like MC Hammer, some of that. I was fortunate to go to public schools that were kind of 50-50 people of color and um, and white kids. And so to me, that kind of combination of what was on the radio, kind of on the rap radio and, and also on sort of just pop radio, all that kind of stuff, sort of very mainstream stuff. And then I got into Dave Matthews in, in, uh, in middle school and high school and was in a band that was kind of like, we covered Nirvana and then we played like that thing you do from that movie. We loved that. We played so we, Nirvana, that song. Then we played a Weezer song and we covered Dave Matthews songs. And then we had a couple of original songs that were kind of like sentimental and emotional, but very heartfelt and very derivative of like, if you mixed all those influences together and kind of like ape those as, as best as possible. And I would say starting around middle of high school toward late high school, I started getting into, I had this kind of really intense connection with James Taylor. I went to, I went to UNC okay. and um, he grew up in Chapel Hill and something about the sounds of especially the, that early James Taylor stuff. And then hearing the story of how, I don't know if you know this story, but he, when he was 18 or 19, he had a lot of problems fitting in, a lot of anxiety. And um, he went to England and he was just playing in a bar and the Beatles manager heard him. And he was the first artist signed to Apple Records. I didn't know this story. And so while, while the White Album was being made during the day, at night, he was making his record. It's just called James Taylor. I think he was 19. And he had written something in the way she moves. And he had already written Carolina in my mind. And there's a couple other cool songs on that. But the Beatles were playing on it. So if you can imagine being a 19-year-old kid and someone hearing your, your kind of sad, quiet thing and being like, this is the first thing we want to sign and we're going to play on it. Biggest rock stars of all time, maybe. I mean, definitely. I'd say, yeah, still. That just set me on fire when I was around 17. That story is totally incredible. So I, I became obsessed and I started doing this thing where I would just buy somebody's catalog, starting with the first record. And so I just did that with James Taylor and just listened to all of it and just tried to understand it. And some of it I liked a lot less and some of it I you know, was in love with, but I just tried to take the whole thing and just take the ride. And then I did that with Paul Simon and then I did it with, you know, so started doing that with songwriters. And Bob Dylan 
when I was around 20. I left college when I was 20. I ended up finishing later, but I left at that time with this band I was in and I was doing remote school and we would tour. The band was older than me, the other guys in the band and got really into Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell. And like my parents weren't listening to any of that stuff when I was growing up. So for me, it was all new. And I was in a pop rock band. I wasn't the singer. I wrote the, some of the songs with the singer and and then I played keys and guitar. You know, I, I didn't sound right for that. But as I started to hear all these other singers and especially that 60s, 70s stuff is Dylan and Neil Young and Van Morrison. And I should say I did grow up on Motown and I always loved Motown records. And um, my dad brought me up on a lot of Motown as well. And, but he was also into Beach Boys and Beatles and some of those. But he wasn't like a deep diver as far as having a lot of records. He just listened to the radio and he was kind of a music nerd in that he knew the month usually or the season and the year that songs came out. And so he would quiz me as a kid. That's awesome. And I think it wrecked my brain in the way that I, <laughs> because I became a much more serious kind of music historian than he ever was. But I had that in me that anytime I hear something, I'm like, I need to know where it came from, when it was, who were the people behind it, who produced the album. And so that's where my brain eventually went. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So I'm kind of giving you way too much information, I guess. No, it's, that's exactly what this is. You know, there's so many different paths of how we get to now, but I kind of hope this is that show that allows inspiring musicians to come on and then kind of be real and just talk about whatever, whatever it is that, that made them. And so, no, I appreciate what you're saying and, and your kind of deep dive into where you came from. Thank you for saying that. And I'm really enjoying this. And that's how my, um, it's just how my mind works. When you ask a question, all this stuff just pulls up and it's very, sometimes it's hard for me to not just dive fully in there and just sort of go on the journey of my memory. Like basically when I heard the Beatles, the only thing it reminded me of was traveling. My grandparents took me to England when I was nine mm -hmm. and I had been on maybe one other trip like that where I'd seen a completely different culture and place. I'd been to Mexico and I started writing songs immediately and they were truly <laughs> horrible. But it was just, I just thought I, I gotta, I gotta try to either add to this or just get something in me out that, that's connected to this. And, and I had this friend who was super gifted and actually he was playing on the piano, Let It Be, but I'd never heard Let It Be. And he said he made it up. And he wasn't singing the melody. He made up a different melody and he changed the words to happy birthday to you, my friend. And he would sing it for people at parties like in seventh grade. And I just became obsessed with, I was like, this dude is so freaking talented. That is the most incredible thing. And the truth is he actually is really talented like that. And we, we ended up being in a band together. But starting right around that time, it was like, heard the Beatles, connected with this friend, my friend Michael. And man, it was just like off to the races. He taught me how to play that song. And then from there, I just kind of like picked my way through learning some chords on the piano. And then I was the piano player player in the band. Every time we wrote a song, I'd be like, uh, I got to get better. Hold on. Just wait about a month and I'm trying to get better enough so I can play this song. And then, so it's kind of like I expanded very slowly and, and eventually took some lessons and, and I got into Elton John and, and I sort of got into some Billy Joel stuff. And so that mixed with kind of the Motown my dad was really into this band called the Gap Band, you know, like uh, Burn Rubber on Me and yeah. uh, You Dropped a Bomb on Me. And uh, we would wash dishes to that. You dropped a bomb on me, baby. Yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome. The Gap Band is awesome. So I was kind of into that kind of like funky Motown and Stax kind of stuff, you know, Aretha Franklin. And so all that stuff was part of my early, early music stuff. But then when it, when I realized, oh, I could write songs, even knowing it's not very good, but I can do it and it could get better. Then when I, I got to UNC, I joined this band of older guys that were much more serious and much more excellent. And, and I also became an English major. 
which made me realize almost everything I say is not worth saying, but there are things. And, and I don't mean that to say that my experiences weren't worth translating, but I, I didn't have access to phrasing that excited even me. So I knew by reading these great novels, I knew, oh, you can do that, but you just have to get better. For me, that was like a total awakening of, of possibility, even though I realized, you know, most of the ways I say things without editing are truly unclear and nothing worth saying. But I thought it is in me, you know, the translation is worth it. And so I think the combination of those things led to this early songwriting instinct for me. And, and I think a lot of what we started talking about uh, in terms of pain and trying to understand. The chameleon thing really resonates with me. I, I had a real ability to be with people in whatever way they needed me to be with them and starting to write and get in touch with like why I felt the need to do all those things and what all that's coming from. And also why people wanted that was showing their own need and their own inability to accept them themselves. And all this stuff started coming up. And so it was a real awakening time for me. Chapel Hill is a very special place to me still. It's, it's the beginning. You know, it was the beginning of a lot of things for me. A lot of good musicians out of there that are currently touring around in different sects of bluegrass and folk Americana. I've had a number of people on the show that came out of Chapel Hill. So I still love so many of the folks making music there. And I'm, I'm still very inspired by many aspects of what's happening there. In terms of our early times, I think with starting with that James Taylor obsession of mine, which led to kind of Paul Simon and then all those kind of like kind of mystical white dudes. And then that led into Leonard Cohen and, and Joni Mitchell and then kind of starts starts expanding out from there. And then it's like, oh, and then there's Lou Reed and Double Underground. And it's kind of all these these people that write very specifically and vulnerably, but some of them have a swagger. Some of them are, like I think Leonard Cohen's bringing the kind of the mystical and the religious and mm -hmm. sexual. And he's combining these things in this bizarre way that makes you feel weird and seen and also makes you feel like, I don't know about that. Like I've never had that. But did I though? Because I remember this one. You know, and this whole you can see yourself in it and it's other at the same time. And all of that started just firing me up. And if I ever start talking about music, I can't even sleep. I'm just like <gasps> and so that's what's happening right now. But um because I'm remembering all these things and how inspiring and, and I think Lauren's influences she also brought in a bunch of other kinds of stuff into my life. Yeah, it's funny, music was also not like a big thing in my family and house growing up. But you and your brother both were kind of obsessed with music. Yeah. Yeah. But you were into yeah, Queen and ELO yeah, and like... Yeah, a little um, bit of Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin. I mean, I think growing up, a lot of the things that influenced me were trickling down from my my older brother. But my experience in music started in chorus. I think I was, I was always an alto, so I, I was always the harmony. And I think that really influenced how I hear music. I think that taught me harmony without me realizing that I was learning. Your guys' music seemed kind of introspective in a lot of ways, but then it also seems to draw from like a lot of external societal kind of things and some of the uh, topics that you navigate through in your songs in this last year of having a small child and then also all the crazy things that were going on in the world around you as you guys are writing new music do you find that that, that introspective side of like your personal experience or the societal changes and and things going on in the world are your bigger draws you're you know writing new music for for things to come well i'm curious to see what will happen because we wrote the songs so we're releasing an album of original songs in the fall that we wrote kind of like right at the start 
of things being shut down in the first three months before the yeah end. yeah so like i don't think we even knew when we wrote these songs we didn't even know we were pregnant yet so there's so much that hasn't been processed right. in song yet i think so we haven't really written i've got a lot of starts of songs yeah yeah but we haven't like sat down to like really move some things forward yet so i'm curious to see what will um it's just been like so many like horrifying things so many beautiful things there's a lot there is a lot yeah, uh, the way that I write is like almost, I still, Jack Kerouac was kind of my inspiration when I was in college to like, oh, you just put the pen down and let it go. And then later on, you know, for me as an editor, I can find, you know, if there's something in there, but the only way for like poetry to kind of come out of me is to just word vomit onto the page and then allow, you know, like you said, you're like, sometimes I'm talking and it doesn't sound cohesive but there's something inside of it that you can kind of get to. Yeah. And, and for me, that just means throwing everything down. And so right now I have like, I don't know how many notebooks and pieces of paper and little points where I'm just like, ah, oh, I got this lyric and voice memos and it's, it's all out there. And I'm, yes. I'm, but I'm so busy that I'm like, I have, I just haven't had that time to like really baby it and doctor it into the, the things that I want it to be. But so I definitely understand that aspect mm-hmm. of like, got a lot of starts but just haven't had the time to edit and make it the finished product that's my process too and we call it yes town we have a certain amount of time when we're writing that we just call we just call it yes town for however long until we shift into when we trim stuff down and it's like we just say yes to every idea yes to every song yes to every lyric because when you edit on the fly you are unable to get i think you're unable to get the same mm-hmm. kinds of momentum. Eventually you'll be like, all right, there's 14 sections of this song. It's 17 minutes long. Mm-hmm. All right, we need it to be about three, three and a half. Yeah, and you're like, I want a three-minute song. It's a 17-minute song. Um, and that, I think that that raw material, I think that's the same thing we try to do with albums. We try to write way more songs than we need and then have the hard decision of cutting a kind of significant portion of the songs that we've written out of it. Much of what Lauren writes is kind of ready to go because she writes much slower and much less often. She has a more distilled quality. When things come out of her, it's sort of like they've risen up and they've been processed in all these different ways that are non-verbal, which I I don't understand. But for me, it's a lot of it is external. So I try to make a lot of conscious effort to leave space so that her voice gets onto things in, um, in kind of equal measure to mine, because I, as you can tell, I talk so much more and so much faster. When we write, we, one or the other of us will start a song, but then we inevitably swap because if we're doing it simultaneously, like sitting down together my mind just needs space and quiet and if he's generating ideas and putting them out there i'm like i'm thinking about your ideas and i'm not able to generate in the moment with someone or at least that's not a skill i've honed so and then eventually we do sit down together we found ways to make the differences work (laughs) so you guys you released solo and have another album in the works and also have a small child is making a guest <laughs> appearance as his first podcast. But uh, when you first were getting going and for a number of years, you're just crazy touring, you know, doing the hundreds of dates a year. And then you pared it down after it sounds like 2017, 2018. At some point, you kind of tried to pare it down to a six month cycle and then integrating in what kind of things that you could do to also create an income based off of it. And I know that you do, you produce other people's music. 
And then now you guys have gone on to really kind of embracing the uh, Patreon thing, it sounds like, and have kind of created a community. But as things are opening back up now and touring is starting to seem like reality, you have a very small child, but I know that, you know, you guys are friends with David and Suze who have historically toured throughout their (laughs) children's upbringing in a way that, you know, seems magical and also insane but we've had some conversations with them about how they do that just to try to learn are you guys kind of just waiting with with having a a new child until 2022 or are you just kind of gonna wait and see as things come come back around we have a couple things that we're gonna try out kind of private gig type things that we're gonna try out this summer and see how our son does and we also have some plans to start playing in the fall but we're we're waiting to announce anything until we kind of put a enough together that it can be part of sort of like talking about this new record and because every single band everywhere of all sizes wants to play this fall we also have considered kind of leaving that every band that i know they're just all trying to do the exact same things and so we also feel that desire to do that stuff and we're just trying to figure out would it be smart to just do the spring or should we also be out there with everybody and i mean i don't know i imagine like playing a town and six of our friends are playing the same night all at different venues and maybe i'd rather people go to their show i don't know so we're we're trying to figure that out but but we want to play we really want to play we miss it we are going to play at least some uh in the fall i'll be an experiment i have no idea how we're Good. Is there anything that I haven't mentioned that you would like to let the listeners know about, like anything additional you want to promote outside of what we've talked about? I was going to say, and you may have talked about this with David Wax and Suze, but we've started a collaboration with them called Golden Hour. I didn't talk about it, but I know about it. It's very cool. Yeah. I mean, it's not something that's happening right now, but I think this thing's open back up. It's something we're really excited to get back into. And so Golden Hour, just if I give a brief synopsis of what I understand, is that you guys play a live show in the dark and people either close their eyes or wear blindfolds and then they're kind of it's like a musical immersion experience of you know what it's like to listen to your headphones in the dark but with a live musical performance hey that's great that last little thing is a great description yeah so it's it's what you said the audience is typically blindfolded and we play unplugged so we can move throughout the audience so it's kind of like surround sound concert there's no stage so you're kind of immersed in the music and we learn each other's songs and it's songs in the round there's a brief story that world cafe did about it that kind of explains it pretty well i think i'll put a link in the show notes to that okay great yeah that's on our website or you know you can just google our band and david wax and world cafe and it's right there it's exactly the kind of thing that cannot happen during COVID. Right. Small space. We limit the crowd to Very. like 50 to 75. We want it, everyone to feel like they're getting a personalized surround sound experience. And it's very spatial. Singing and breathing on people up close is not something. <laughs> we don't breathe do. on anybody. Uh, <laughs> there's none of the there's none of the clouds that surround no, anybody's no, head. I was about to say we're going to really have to wait a little bit through this pandemic before you guys really take part in this uh, magical cloud blowing because it, it just, it seems wrong for the time, even if you're not close and you got your six feet of space, just a lot of blowing breath. Yeah. It just sounds a lot, even with the, even if it's a vaccinated cloud, 
It's just a little. It's too soon. Too soon. It's going to go with too soon. Yeah. But that's something we're really excited about. Golden really Hour. And we think they're going to start happening. Started gaining momentum right as the pandemic became a pretty serious thing here. So it feels like we just have so much excitement about jumping back into that when it's safe to do so. And I would just mention also that we really have really enjoyed connecting with people through Patreon and for people who want a much deeper dive with our band, that's a really great way. And it's really, uh, there are lots of options that are very inexpensive on there. And it's, we do this listening party every month that has been really cool. And we've learned a lot about new music from that. Different members of the community, whoever wants, just sends in their song choice. And then we all get on Zoom. We draw numbers for whose song gets played. The person gives a short introduction. Then we all mute everything and listen, unmute after it's over and talk about it. And it's just been really a beautiful thing throughout the pandemic. And we decided to continue it on. So that's really fun. And we're really sharing a lot of stuff we never thought we'd, we would share. Footage from the studio, songs that we never released that are all almost finished or we have versions of the songs that are just kind of like a different genre almost but it's been fun to have a place to share that and interact with people about how these things have come to be so those two things i think have been really fun and and would be cool to focus on too yeah we're actually about to release our patreon page and one of the things that i'm working on right now is integrating the ability to upload videos because i'm creating like a an online open mic for artists so that they can be like a forum within the community for people to play their songs and then have people like critique and like in a positive way hopefully of like creating like this this open mic scenario and then also artists of other types to be able to you know put in their artwork and have people kind of critique and discuss and help improve whether it's poetry or or actually paintings and and whatever it is but it's going to be called like an open mic platform so we're looking forward to putting that out soon oh that's That's awesome i love that yeah cool idea thanks and so last question before we say goodbye do you have any advice or words of wisdom that you would like to say to the world or something important that you you think needs to be mentioned in our our current state of affairs something i'm trying to work on kind of we're, we're both kind of always trying to work on is the importance of leaving space it's so easy to just jump from thing to thing to thing and i think had different seasons in life where i'm extremely addicted to my cell phone and just any spare moment peeing walking from one room to another like just any spare moment i feel it so quickly and it's like almost uncomfortable to just leave space between things but i think we need that space our minds need that space that's something i'm working on that i think probably could serve most people i've been thinking about this this weekend i think living with a posture of listening is something i've been trying to think about and another way i've been thinking about it is if you think of yourself as a guest here it's like when you enter a room not thinking i have what anyone in here needs but thinking I'm a guest in this room. It just changes the way there's an eagerness to it. You're you're looking around to try to orient yourself to this place that you're in. And I've been thinking about that living like a guest slash this kind of posture of listening because we've been living in such isolation, being in North Carolina, doing this pre-production and the shows I just was a part of just kind of realized anew that I've just been in my own little thing for a a long time. And and I I really want to kind of re-enter and with those mindsets. And I think, yeah, I guess that's kind of advice, but we're kind of giving ourselves advice. (laughs) And if it helps anybody else, we'd be be really happy about that too. There we go. I think that sums up this show. Touching. I'd love to have you guys back on in the future. And as you put out more music, because I just want to stay in touch. I think that, uh, I think we're friends now. Yeah. I think you and I are, kind of mirror images of folks in different I know man we were having a similar experience
experience a it's few hundred here. miles apart. Yeah, I would love that. And and I've really enjoyed this conversation. And, and, and like I said, I appreciate you guys not for charging me today. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Same here, man. Same here. Um, and, uh, I look forward to all of your uh, sonically ironic songs in the future. <laughs> and, um, and it was really, it was really nice to meet you guys, though, and I, I really do appreciate you guys. It's wonderful to meet you, Marcus. Thank yeah. you for your candor and um, for your honesty too. It's it's very refreshing. Well, thank you guys, and you guys have a good day. All right, you too, Marcus. Thank you so Bye. much for taking time. Crystal Gillis picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been. Beatles. Lives in a dream, meets at the window, wearing the face that she keeps in the drawer by the door. Who is it for? All the lonely people. Where do they all come from? Okay, but I guessed it right, right? I don't like this game when you don't play by the rules. I am playing by the rules. I can finish the words of the song. It's just like a game show. It's like a damn game show. <laughs> In the game show, they cut the music as soon as you know the answer. They cut so that they don't have to pay all the royalties that we just paid. But because we don't make any fucking money, it doesn't matter. Okay. <clears throat> so tonight we are here to talk about Lauren and Daniel Gones of Lowland Hum. I thought we would kick it off with discussing Peter Gabriel and So. Since Lowland Hum covered the entire album and calling it So Low, which they released on May 19th of 2021, which was 35 years after the album's initial release, May 19th, 1986. What was your best romantic song ever recorded? What was that song you had in mind from that record? In Your Eyes. In Your Eyes, the light, the heat. Your eyes. Okay, so when I was in middle school, okay, or maybe I was actually in elementary school, but 1989, Say Anything came out. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Lloyd Dobler holds the boombox over the top of his head and serenades his ex-girlfriend. No, it's at her bedroom. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, but it's his girlfriend slash ex-girlfriend, Diane Court, and he holds the boombox. Right. And it's playing in your eyes. Okay. I see. That was the that was the song. That was the most iconic romantic song of our time. Do you disagree? Um, yes, pretty firmly. Okay, what was yours? Like from that period of our lives? You just disagreed. I just want to hear what your counter to my statement was. Okay. You know what? The only really impactful, like romantic, I don't know if you'd call it romantic so much as creepy. I can't, now looking back, all music from that era seems creepy, but I was really into uh, Chris Isaac's Wicked Game, okay, which Wicked. was within a couple of years of that. It was, it was. I thought you were going to go, don't stand. Why would that be romantic stand so to you? close to me. I, <laughs> it wasn't romantic and I just lost my mic. All right. Peter Gabriel and So. Solo covered the entire album. It seemed like quite an endeavor with the baby in the house. Yeah. Peter Gabriel, who was one of the members of Genesis, 
along with Phil Collins, Quantum Leap, back to Mike Marsh's episode and Mike Marsh's drum kit. Peter Gabriel's fifth studio album was So, which sold over five million albums and was number one in the UK and number two in the US that year. It received four Grammy nominations, including Album of the Year, Record of the Year for Sledgehammer, and Best Male Rock Performance. It lost Album of the Year in 1987 to Paul Simon's Graceland. It also won nine MTV Music Awards nine times. Gosh. I don't remember Ferris Missing. No? No. Also, I I think that um, someday when this podcast does make money, when you finally get your Patreon page up and running so that people can, I don't know, support you as they would like to do, I really hope the first thing that we have to stop doing is saying quantum fucking leap back to whatever the fuck. I hope that somebody threatens to sue you within the first week because I hate it. I think the banjo res is going to be all on board. They're going to save the clock tower. All right. So, uh, talked a little bit about, uh, in your eyes, so we don't have to talk about that. Can we go into say anything? Absolutely not. We can only dance around it. Okay. Can we do a little bit of role playing? I'm sorry. What? I want to do some role playing with you right now. Is that why you handed that to me? Yep. Do you want to be Jim or Lloyd? Jim. Okay. Would you like me to start this weird little role play? I would. Okay. This is from Say Anything 1989. Yeah, Lloyd, what are your plans for your future? Spend as much time as possible with Diane before she leaves. Seriously, Lloyd. I'm totally and completely serious. No, really. You mean like career? I don't know. I've... I've thought about this quite a bit, sir, and I'd have to say, considering what's waiting out there for me, I don't want to sell anything, buy anything, or process anything as a career. I don't want to sell anything bought or processed, or buy anything sold or processed, or process anything sold, bought, or processed, or repair anything sold, bought, or processed. You know, as a career, I don't want to do that. That's my, uh, that was my favorite line from saying anything. I like it. All right. Daniel talked about James Taylor being the first artist signed to the Beatles label, Apple. He played in 1968 for Paul McCartney and George Harrison. Daniel talked about Taylor's anxiety prior to this and, you know, that it seemed kind of happen chance that he played for the Beatles and got on their label. But it seems a little bit more tailored than that. Did you do that on purpose? I didn't. But once I'd done it, I I was real (laughs) excited about it. (laughs) So when Taylor was 16, he was admitted to a psychiatric hospital with what would now likely be diagnosed as anxiety and depression. His parents had spent his college tuition on his time at the hospital. So after he got out, he headed to New York and he started a band and he also started a pretty bad heroin habit. Uh, So he went to London in 68. His friend had given him the number of Peter Asher, the brother of Paul McCartney's girlfriend, Jane Asher, and he had been hired as an R&D guy for the label. He liked Taylor's demo and arranged for an audition. McCartney and Harrison liked Taylor's music, so they signed him to the label. Taylor was still on opiates while he recorded his first album. The Beatles were also recording the White Album at the same time. I couldn't find anything where they recorded on his album, but I did find that John Lennon may or may not have picked up a heroin addiction from James. He was eventually released from the Apple contract, entered a rehab facility, and moved to Laurel Canyon, quantum leap back to Aaron Ray. 
And that's where the magic of James Taylor really happened. Wow. In Laurel Canyon. So Max Hedrum. Did you watch Max Hedrum as a kid? The, like the cute computerized guy? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, it was on TV about the same time as uh, MacGyver and. It was just before MacGyver. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Max Hedrum is a British fictional artificial intelligence character known for his wit, stuttering and electronically altered voice. He was introduced in early 1985. This was on a made for TV British movie, but the character was created by George Stone, Annabelle Jenkel and Rocky Morton. Max was portrayed by Matt Frewer. And the only thing that I could think that you might know him on was he was the next door neighbor's dad in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, really? Yeah, that was that was like, I went through his entire list and I was like, ah, yeah, 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 that, she should know that, she should know that, she should know that. <laughs> okay, dad and Next door neighbor's dad and honey, I shrunk the kids. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. She'll remember him in that. So you did a good job of not coming up with the most obscure other thing that he was in. Yes, I tried Look to come at up. You. I was being a. It's loving, like you love me. Being a loving and doting husband. And it's also like you coddled me just a little bit. Yeah. So anyway, this character was called the first computer-generated TV personality. So although the computer-generated appearance was achieved with an actor in prosthetic makeup and harsh lighting in front of a blue screen, he was meant to be like an AI character. I feel like that's not true because the Jetsons had a maid that was AI. Am I wrong? She was a robot. That is the same thing, isn't it? So robots and AI are slightly... Did you look up the definition of that? Because I think you're just making shit up. So I'm making <laughs> up in a sense. because You're just making life. up this like you made up the rules to our little name that tune game. Eleanor nope, nope, Crystal. No. She is the one that I don't want to get sued for this song. <laughs> da, 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 da. Okay. So they said that Max Hedrum was the first AI character, but really they did not take into account the Jetsons mate. Let's just leave it at that. We're both happy. I'm happy. Okay. <laughs> like I said, the character originally came from a British TV show, but the show that my family watched was a U.S. broadcast show running mid to late 1980s. I really think it only went like one full season and then like two episodes into the second season. But Max Hedrum was this talking head and he was supposed to be what was considered the idealistic middle-class white male in a suit. And that was kind of the reference that I was making in the mm. conversation when I was talking about our former president and a talking head. I see. But uh, the thing that was funny about him was he used to get caught in these cuts and he would have these like loops and stutters as a result but he got pulled after the TV show got canceled into the Coca-Cola campaign. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then that was in 1989 when Coca-Cola Classic went back to New Coke. Okay. So there was Coke and then there was Coca-Cola Classic went to the old formula Coke. So they put cocaine back in. Yep. Okay. And then Good job, Coke. Then I just started doing all the blow. I was just <laughs> snorting all the lines of of cocaine but you know what i hate about snorting coke i don't know the ice cubes always get stuck at my nose i don't get the joke i hate everything about your humor sometimes okay so anyway um <laughs> he did this thing and that then just the made me really mad way that i remember max headroom as he went 
catch the wave, Coke. And that was the new Coke slogan. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was it. Okay, that's all. And Wait, what Coke recipe did they end up landing on? They went back to classic Coke. They went back to classic. Yeah, so it was classic Coke for a while, and they got rid of the classic. They got rid of new Coke altogether, okay. and then new Coke became Coca-Cola. Was that about the time like like Crystal Pepsi came out? Oh, you mean the disgusting? Oh my god, it was amazing. It was like clear. You know what? I bet that was. Was, it, was there multiple versions of Crystal Pepsi, or was it all clear? No, it was all clear. And I bet that was the beginning, like the origins of my love for novelty sodas. Probably. Like I just, I love a novelty soda. She does. The new mango Pepsi. It is goddamn delicious. I don't believe that at all. It tastes like a little piece of heaven. I don't. That's, <laughs> I'm probably wrong. I'm probably wrong. But I have a 12 hour road trip that's coming up like tonight and I have every intention of stopping at every single gas station getting a novelty soda. Well, I'm going to throw up in my mouth. Okay. <laughs> so, and that is the shortest wave we have ever caught here on the wrap up. Oh, that is it? That is literally it. That's all you have for me? Yeah. Okay. Next week is a mystery guest, either male or female, because <laughs> I really don't but, fucking know. However, they are your favorite. They're all your favorite. Okay. Yeah, yeah you're right. I love them all. Any good guesses? No. You've even told me and I still couldn't pull it out of my mind bank and be like, oh yeah, so-and-so. Out of your box? Uh, no, we're not going to. Nope. Not today. Well, I love you. I love you. And I love all y'all. And just remember, kid, we're all in this together. <laughs> <laughs>